All right, good to be back in Mark once again as we continue on through the book. Uh, I don't know about you, but I sometimes struggle with anxiety. The fear of it might be health, it might be the future of my children, it might be resources, might be what's going on in a certain situation, what the, fu- uh, what the future is going to hold, what this week is going to hold. A whole host of things can cause anxiety uh, in me. I also sometimes struggle with grumbling. I don't like a situation, so I grumble. Oftentimes this time of year, I grumble about the weather. You've probably heard me grumble about the weather. I don't deserve this type of weather because I'm special. <laughs> Uh, I can struggle with envy. I desire what other people have, whether that be financially or resources or skills or gifts. I want what they have. When it comes to prayer, uh, sometimes I really struggle to pray because simply I don't have time. I have an independent spirit. The reality is oftentimes I think that I don't need God to get in the way let me handle this. Sometimes when other, someone else is praying and we're praying in a group, I might get distracted with what I'm going to pray rather than listen to the other people because I'm very concerned what other people are going to think about my prayer. So I want to make sure I have the right things to pray. Sometimes in prayer in groups of people, I might talk longer than I really need to. All I really had to say in request to God was quite short but I feel that that might be embarrassing to other people, so then I just kind of keep adding to it, sometimes just repeating the same thing over and over so that I sound good, so that other people get this perception that I must really know what I'm doing. I can be stubborn in conversation. This has always been a part of me. Sometimes it's because I really want to stick to my guns. I really do believe what I'm saying. Sometimes I don't actually believe it that much. I just had said it, now i got to stick to it. Sometimes I can really try to clarify something that's mediocre. So meaning like I've done a task and it really didn't go that well, but now I need to qualify for why it didn't go well. Well, it was really hard or I didn't have enough time. Uh, You don't know what my week was like. I can be tempted to do that with sermons. Like when I know the sermon didn't go well, I want to be like, you don't know how hard that passage was, how hard I worked on it. Because I'm I'm concerned about people's perception about me. I want people to applaud me and, and give me praise. So I want to try to keep that. I can have a fear of failing and a fear of rejection. So uh, throughout my life, I've withheld from trying certain things quite a bit because I'm afraid to try something and then find out that I'm really not that good. And so I'd rather not try and not have to face that. Now, I could go on. These are all manifestations of what we call pride, self-intoxication, self-absorption, of self-focus that I want to keep a certain image, a certain safety. And so it manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. In fact, uh, this past week I took some time to, to write out a list of ways that pride manifests itself in my life. And I came up with a list of over 60 ways that pride manifests itself. Now, the crazy thing about that is one of them ends up on there is I think I'm one of the best proud people there is that I can come up with a list like this. And like now the people are going to think how great I am at being proud. Thank you. 
it's, it's very, very disgusting. Um, and I, I've shared a couple times as we've watched the disciples fight for position, that, that uh, remix of Mr. Rogers' song. It's me, I like. It's not the clothes you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. It's me, I like. Now, uh, if you struggle with uh, pride at all, then this passage today is for you, which I would suggest is everyone. Jonathan Edwards, uh, great, uh, the late great theologian, said that pride is the main spring of all other heirs, or the main support of all other heirs, meaning all other sin actually flows from pride. It all goes back to this very first uh, sin in the garden, and every sin after that comes right from that spring. So it would be wise of us to listen closely as we watch the Lord interact uh, here as we continue on uh, in our passage. I think you can sum up our, our passage here today that Jesus condemns self-intoxicated, quote-unquote, faith, and he commends self-offering faith. He invites us into that, to offer our whole selves, and he condemns the faith, quote-unquote, that is self-intoxicated. So if you remember, we uh, were this is the third week in uh, the one day of ministry that Jesus had at the temple, starting in chapter 11, verse 27, when he had this confrontation with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Uh, they were asking where he got the authority from the previous day to, to cleanse the temple. And if you remember, that's when he gives that uh, parable of the vineyard, saying, my authority is because I am the Son of God, who through your rejection will conquer you. That's how I get my authority, because of who I am, and I am going to conquer you, but it will be through your rejection. And then we saw last week the three confrontations with these interrogators as Jesus silences the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the first ones, or someone once said the Fadducees to make it easier. (laughs) Then we saw him go against the Herodians that come and challenge him, and then the scribe at the end. And remember how that conversation ends, or those three scenes end right at the end of verse 34, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And now it's Jesus' turn. They've been questioning him, and now he's going to turn the table. Look at verse 35 again. And Jesus now taught in the temple, and he asked them a question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So then tell me, how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now notice in 35 who Jesus is asking the question about. How can the scribes say this? So if you remember that the scribe was the last interrogator that came to Jesus, and now he's saying, now let's talk about the scribes. If you remember the scribes, uh, we talked about them last week. The scribes were like the experts in God's law. They were the ones that, that did the interpretation of Scripture, taught the people. So that in, one, in some sense, they were like a lawyer, and in some sense, they were like a, a theologian professor. They, they were the elite in God's law, and so they are the ones that instruct the people and know God's word. 
And so here then, Jesus is asking a question regarding them and how they interpret the scriptures, specifically about the Christ, if you see that. How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, this was an interpretation that they had uh, throughout the ages, and it's accurate. It's true. Jesus is starting from that, their starting point of what they said about the Christ. In fact, as Matthew records this, uh, Jesus asks them, what about the Christ? Who do you, who do you say the Christ is? And they're, they, they're the ones that answer. They say, he's the son of David. And they're right. He is the son of David. If you remember 2 Samuel 7, this is where it all starts. God comes to David, great King David, and tells David that he will have a son. One will be born to him, and he will sit on the throne forever. God will establish that throne, and someone will come from David to rule over all things. Well, that's how the pr promise continues to expand. Because what happens, David dies, right? He has a son, Solomon. Solomon becomes king. The kingdom expands, but then it quickly crumbles after Solomon dies. Right? Rehoboam comes, and the kingdom gets split. And from that point forward, the prophets begin to point back to David. And yet they're pointing forward. They'll say, someone is going to come, like David, to rule over the nations. He will come, he will crush all the enemies of God's people, and there will be rest once again. And so the people of God had been longing for that day when the son of David, who would be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, would come. So listen a couple places. Jeremiah prophesying about uh, this David to come. He says that about God's people, they shall serve the Lord their God and they shall serve David their king. David had been dead hundreds of years prior. They will serve David their king and I, God speaking, I will raise up whom I will raise up for them. Or Micah is a very famous Christmas passage. It shows up in Matthew. Uh, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, this is where David is born who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler. Here's the, the king, just like David. He will rule in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Another very famous Christmas passage, Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government, again we have rulership, a son, who will rule, shall be upon his shoulders, and his name, his name, the son's name, shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of this son's government and of peace, there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So you can, we could go on for a long time about the, the prophets pointing back that one is coming from David, a descendant of David, who will rule. He will rule over the nations. He will crush the enemies of God's people. And that's right. That is right. But if you notice, even in some of the passages that I just read, the Micah 1 and Isaiah, there is clearly a coming a descendant of David. He will be a son of David. He will be the anointed one. He will bring rescue and rest. But he's not simply a man. If you notice that Isaiah passage, this son that will be born, who will come and sit on the throne of David, he is, if you caught those, those phrases, we will call him mighty God, everlasting father. You see, he is the son, he is going to be a human descendant of David, but there's something going on that he's so much more. And so 
exactly what, this is what Jesus is doing here in the temple to these uh, scribes, saying, now let's talk about that place where David talks about his son who's coming. You remember Psalm 110, right? This is what he's quoting. It says, the, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, if that is David's son, this was a wide-held wide belief that this was referring to the Messiah who would come, the Christ, David's son, because in the psalm, this, this, this uh, uh, figure is coming and he's going to rule over the nations. He's going to crush all the enemies of God's people. And he says, now, look, guys, if... If that is David's son, why is David talking to him like that? David's got this vision, and in the vision, it says, The Lord says to my Lord. Do you know any dads, especially in that day, who talked to their son that way? My Lord? Now, what's happening here, if you go back to the uh, psalm, uh, as they translate the Hebrew, 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 the Hebrew, you have two different terms being used for Lord. It's, you don't see that in the, in the New Testament because this is Greek, so it's the same word. But in the, the Hebrew, you have what uh, the first one, the Lord, if you go back to the psalm, you'll notice it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's how we translate it in the New Testament in English. That's to try to signify that that term is, that the term in the Hebrew is Yahweh. This is, this is God's name, right? Yahweh. The second one is uh, capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, and that would be the term Adonai. You'll probably hear these terms throughout your walk with the Lord if you're a follower of Christ. Adonai uh, is also a name or a title for God used hundreds of times about God throughout the Old Testament, uh, and oftentimes these are put together because Adonai is specifically referring to God as being the master the sovereign one, the one who rules over all things, the one who is in control. And so if you look at like Psalm 8, the psalmist says, O Yahweh our Adonai. So it would be, O God, O Lord, our master. So this is very common in the Old Testament. So what's happening here in Psalm 110, David then saying, O Yahweh said to my master, and Jesus is saying, how, how could David talk to this figure that way? What do, you, what do you have to say about that? Who is this figure? Is he actually his son? Because David wouldn't talk to his son like that. He didn't talk to Solomon like that. Why would he call him his Lord? Now, their only answer could either be, well, actually, I guess the Christ is not David's son, which would go against their interpretation. and It wouldn't be accurate. Or the other option is, well, he must be greater than a human. He is going to be a descendant of David, humanly speaking, but he, there's something happening here that he is greater than a human. And, you know, this wouldn't be the first time that Jesus is doing this with the teaching of the uh, scribes. If you remember in John uh, Mark 9, the Transfiguration, when the disciples say, how can the scribes say Elijah has to come first? And he says, well, that's true. They're right about that. Elijah does come first. But isn't it also written that the Son of Man must suffer? You see, they're picking and choosing what they want to interpret. They're not interpreting the whole thing. That's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is saying, yes, you believe rightly about the Son, uh, the son of David in one sense, but not enough. 
He's so much more than a man. And throughout the, throughout the book of Mark, this wouldn't be a surprise to us, that Jesus would be greater than a man. Because a man can't walk on water. A man can't speak to a waves and the waves drop. A man can't multiply bread for thousands from a couple loaves of bread. A man can't raise a little girl from the dead. A man can't touch a leper and the leper becomes clean. A man can't put his hands on the blind man and the man can see. And throughout the book, we've been watching the claim unfold that Jesus is not just a man. He is a man. He was hungry. We saw that just a couple, a couple weeks ago. He, he went to go get some figs because he was hungry. He was tired. He slept on the boat. So he was very humanly, but he was so much more. He was God incarnate. God come, the eternal one, come to rescue his people, to bring judgment and salvation. The all-faithful one, the all-powerful one, the one who is all-wise. Now, for the reader, that shouldn't be a surprise to us, but the scribes, they couldn't see it. They, they, were, they were blinded to this reality. And the, the great thing for us as the reader, though, that, that Psalm 110 is actually now true. Psalm 110 was fulfilled, you would say, when Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into glory and took his place, seated at the right hand of God, where he rules over all things. And that is true today. It's as, as true as one plus one equals two, regardless of what we see in the world. Christ, the eternal God, is reigning on the throne. History is not going as random. Whatever happens this week is fully under the control of King Jesus. Now, if you could see that, that might feel like old hat to us. But the reality is, is that's a miracle if you can see it. We watch these scribes who are the elite. These are the guys who know the scriptures and they can't see it. They're blinded to it. So if you see it, it's been a miracle of God that has awakened you in your heart, and that is something to rejoice in. And if Christ is truly reigning on the throne, if he truly is the God-man, that changes everything. That changes how we look throughout the week. Changes the confidence we have. Changes the, the, the fear that we have for what's going to happen. It changes the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about the world, the way we think about the future. Do you see it? Well, we should also ask the question here is why, why does Jesus raise this right here? Now, that's a key thing as you're reading your, the, the scriptures is to be asking about context. This is just grammatical context, literary. What, what is occurring right next to it? Where does this question come from and why is Jesus doing this here? So if you remember uh, from last week, this is where you read what was before it, Jesus' final interaction uh, in the interrogation was with the scribe. And if you remember the question or the statement that Jesus says at the end of that interaction, he looks at the scribes and he says, you, sir, are not far from the kingdom. Because remember, uh, the scribe asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe says, you're right. You're right, Rabbi. To love God with all your heart is better than all sacrifices and love your neighbors yourself. You're right. And then he says, you are not far from the kingdom. Now, that could be an entire compliment. In one sense, I think it is. But it also could be pointing out to the one that the whole crowd there that day would assume is in the kingdom. If anybody is in the kingdom of God that day in the temple, it's the scribe. Because the scribes are the one that teach people how to love God and how to be right with God, how to worship God. The scribes are in the kingdom of God. 
in the minds of the people. So when Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. The question for everybody in the temple at that moment would be something like, what in the world is he talking about? This guy's in the kingdom. Remember when Jesus uh, says that it's, it's hard for a rich man to make it into the kingdom? Earlier in the book? And the disciples are like, what are you talking about? The rich are in the kingdom. Because that, the, the, the rich is clearly a sign of God's blessing. They have to have God's blessing. What are you talking about? It's exactly what's happening here. How can the scribe only be near the kingdom of God? Well, that's what brings this question up. Well, help, let me help you understand why the scribes could be so close yet so far. What keeps people out of the kingdom? There's a gateway to being right with God. And it is Christ himself. If you reject Christ, you can be right on some things about God. If you reject Christ, you can do a lot of nice things in this world. But if you reject Christ, you reject God. Because we have all sinned. And we all need our punishment forgiven. We all need our punishment to be paid. And we will either pay it for ourselves or Christ Jesus will pay the penalty. And it's only by trusting in him, believing rightly in him, that we can actually be made right with God. The very famous uh, passage, right? John three sixteen and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He who believes on the Son is not condemned, but he who does not believe on the Son stands condemned already. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is Scripture's claim. If people want to be made right with God, it is only through Christ. And so for the people that day, they need to understand the reason why scribes are only near the kingdom. They might have some true things about God that they know, but they're rejecting the very one who can actually get them right with God. They're rejecting Christ. You might be here this morning that you believe a lot of right things. You've done a lot of nice, nice things, but if you reject Christ, he is the one person that can actually pay the punishment, the righteous punishment that God will pour out on sinners. And he calls you to confess and trust in him. Now, we might ask ourselves, if, if you are here and you are a follower of Christ, you might ask yourself sometimes, like, why would someone not trust Christ? I mean, if you have two options, like believe on Christ and not be condemned by Almighty God, or, or not believe in Jesus and then face condemnation from God, I'm, I'm, taking the, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna trust Christ. I don't wanna be condemned. Well, John actually continues. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And he continues, whoever does wicked things hates the light, and will not come to the light. Why? 
lest his works be exposed. Scripture's claim is that people reject Christ not because of an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. We love our sin. We don't want to give it up. And there's this intuitive sense that we know that if we claim Christ as master, that means not master over everything just generically, but that means master over me. And he will then have authority over me, and I will have to submit to him. And sinners don't want that. We don't want that. I remember that it was a week to the day before I came to faith when I was 23. And things were starting to come together. They started, were starting to make sense. And somebody pulled me aside and was asking me what I was thinking. And I said, you know, this, this is making more sense. Jesus, this is, this is probably true. And then, then he looked at me and he said, well, what's stopping you? Will you trust in Christ tonight? I said, no, I just, I'm, not, I'm not ready. So what, what's wrong with you? Like, you could, you could go home tonight and die in a car accident on the way home. And I said, I know. I'm just not ready to leave the life. I like what I'm doing. And that's, that's deeply built into the human psyche. We love our sin. We love the darkness. And therefore, when we look at Christ, when he says, we know it intuitively, if, if we come and worship him, it means coming under him. And we don't want it. And what's, what's the, the greatest sin of all, or, or some have called the mother of all sins, the one that gives birth to all sin? Well, if we keep going in Mark, we actually see what it is that kept the scribes from coming to Christ, and it is the intoxication with the self. It's pride. Verse 36, and in his teaching, so Jesus is still teaching, he said, beware those scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like the greetings in the marketplaces. They like to have the best seats in the synagogues. They like to have the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses, the most vulnerable in the community. And for a pretense to make themselves look good, they make these long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So notice he's still clearly talking about the scribes. <clears throat> Their robes will make them stand out as the holy people so that when they walk in the group, everybody will say, oh, there's the holy one right there. Oh, everybody, get out of this seat so that they can have this seat. This is the honored seat. This is for them. They'll make the widows more poor. Rather than caring for the vulnerable in the community, they'll, they'll strip them of any kind of last penny that they have. And so that they look good, they, they'll make these nice polished prayers and go on and on for it so that people think, wow. When they would come through the marketplace, everybody had to stand Unless you were working on a project, then you could remain seated. But otherwise, everybody stood. Now, honoring someone is not the problem, right? It's okay to honor people. The issue in the text is, if you see what Jesus says, they like it. They long for it. This is what they thirst for. Look at me. It's me I like. And God hates pride. 
Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. It's common to say that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Psalm 5.5 would say otherwise there. Isaiah 2 says, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. All pride will be crushed eventually. First Peter, quoting from the Old Testament, says, God opposes the proud. When we're, when we're proud, someone once said, it's like you're putting a target on your back for God. He hates pride. And you might then turn it around and say, and well, guess what else? Pride hates God. Because what pride does is tries to dethrone God. We are made, remember what Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what is pride? It's loving us. It's it's pushing Christ off the throne, and it's putting us on the throne. So pride is directly against God, and God is directly against pride, and they're on a collision course, and one day it will explode. Psalm 10 says that in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. Pride will cause you to be totally blind to God. Because we don't want God on the throne. I want to be on the throne. I am what matters most. That's why John Stott, uh, the late John Stott, uh, used to say that pride is our greatest enemy. The devil's not your greatest enemy. Low self-esteem is not your greatest enemy. The pride of our own heart is our greatest enemy, and it leads to destruction. The old famous Proverbs 16, right? Pride comes before a fall. And we've seen that, I'm sure, in kind of everyday circumstances. A a sort of a cocky athlete goes out on the field thinking he's great, and he has a great downfall that game, right? But it will also happen at the end of the ages. Those who persist in their pride, pride and God will collide. There will be a great explosion, and pride will be crushed according to Isaiah 2. Now, if you're proud here, if you, if you have pride in your heart, that should be a, a major alarm going off in your heart. Because God hates pride. And so what in the world are we going to do? Well, we could, down, we could downplay it, try to ignore it, sort of like if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. Try to just move on and try to not talk about it. Silence it in our own hearts. Well, that, that's not a good solution because it's there. We could try to fix it first. Maybe if we clean ourselves up and then come to God, that will, that will solve it. That's not a good solution either. How's that going for you? You've probably tried it already. That's not going to work. No, the gospel says we don't try to get rid of it first. We confess it. It is there. We confess it, we repent, and we gaze upon the Lord like David did. My Lord, I can't fix this, but you can pay pay my punishment. The almighty, righteous, sinless Son of God come to live a perfect life and die in the place of sinners. I will trust you. I will confess my pride, and I'll come underneath your feet. You see, the sinner can be made right with God, not because we get rid of our pride, but because Christ gets rid of the punishment that our pride deserves. 
That's how we can be made right with God. Not because we clean ourselves up, but because Christ paid the penalty. That's our only hope. But then what, what then? So if you're here this, today, you are a follower of Jesus, and you've been, you've been cleansed, the judgment of God has, has been fully paid out on Christ, what do we do then? Because we're still proud. We're still proud people. Peter was still proud after this. Paul was proud. Paul, remember, near the end of his life, said he's the chief of all sinners. And if pride is the mother of all sins, then clearly he was a proud man. So what do we do? Well, we could say, oh, that's just what we are. Just, just be okay with it. Well, that's not a solution. God tells us to strive for holiness. Well, we could feel guilty about it. Maybe, maybe God will be happy if we kind of wallow in guilt for a while and he'll kind of accept us again. Well, that's not a good solution either. It's actually offensive to the cross if we sit in guilt as if me feeling guilty is going to make God feel better now. That Like, oh, yeah, so he, he looks really guilty. He feels it. I'll let him sit like that for an hour. Then I'll be pacified. That's offensive to God, offensive to the cross, because it tells Jesus your penalty, the penalty you paid on the cross was good, but not good enough. I need to wallow in my guilt. We could tell ourselves to stop it. Well, we could, we could try that. You could, you could try that today. It's not going to work very well. Well, it's a sermon in all of itself for how do we pursue to fight against pride, and perhaps one day we could do that, just a topical sermon. Uh, here's a couple quick lists. I think one, uh, becoming more aware of our pride is a great weapon. Can you, can you think of soldiers going to combat and they don't pay attention to, to who they're fighting? The, the other side, they don't think of their strategies, they don't think of their weapons, they don't, they don't think of what, what they're planning. When soldiers do that, they're in big trouble, right? Or athletes, when you're going to a game, if you don't think at all about the other team of their strategy, you could be in for a rude awakening. So studying our own heart of asking the, a question this week of yourself, where does pride manifest itself in your own life? That would be a worthwhile exercise to sit and ask the Lord, search me, Lord. Reveal to me how pride manifests itself in my own life. That would, that would be worthwhile to study that enemy in ourselves. As good as that is, we would want to spend more time beholding Christ. The old, uh, the late Robert, Robert Murray McShane used to say, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. It's good to look at ourselves. It's good to examine ourselves. But we don't want to just get so self-focused that we get our eyes off Christ. It's looking at Christ, uh, or as you've probably heard the phrase, we become what we behold. We get that from uh, 2 Corinthians 3 when Paul says, beholding the glory of the, of the Lord, we are trans, transformed from one degree of the glory to the next. It's, it's the idea of looking at Christ, his faithfulness, his goodness. He's the good shepherd. He's all-powerful that we actually are changed into, from one degree of glory to the next. Uh, Dominic Smart uh, once said, he's now with the Lord, he said, get one glimpse of the holiness of God, one tiny, brief glimpse of the holiness of God, and any notion of personal adequacy shrivels, withered and scorched by the holiness that's thre that threatened to break out upon Israel. At Sinai. Brothers and sisters, 
if we sit at the feet of the Good Shepherd. We, we think about his care, his faithfulness to us, his strength, his wisdom. It will actually produce something in us that causes us to be less self-focused. We wouldn't want to live for ourselves. If, one, if, if we can live for him, why would we want to live for ourselves? Why would we want to be on the throne when we know who he is? And it actually makes us want to offer our whole selves to the Lord, which is what Jesus said uh, we ought to do, right? Give to God what is God's. So that was the answer to the first question. First Peter, when he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him. Peter seems to be saying, look, God opposes the proud, so what do you do? You humble yourself under God. This isn't necessarily an act of the, the, the emotion, but the act of the will to say, Lord, I will come under you. And where does Mark go in his passage? We actually see an illustration of it. Look at where he goes. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury, watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow, she came. She put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And in our day, the equivalent would probably be a couple bucks. And he called his disciples to him, said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow, forgotten by society, has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. Why? Because they all contributed out of their abundance. Yes, large sums of money. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had. Even though it was only a couple, uh, couple coins, that was the last one she had. All she had to live on. And talk about a vulnerable picture. Try to think about that woman going home. What is she going to eat in the afternoon or the evening? She just gave away her last pennies. She's got nothing. But what we see here is a beautiful picture of a woman saying, I have nothing, Lord, but I give you myself. I give you my last little bit. That's all I have, but I give it to you. I know it's not anything, but you have everything. This is the very blind Bartimaeus we saw a couple weeks ago. Son of David, I know I have nothing to offer you, but you have everything. And I give you my, my very self. It's a vulnerable picture, but it's beautiful. And the result? This captures the heart of God. Look at Jesus stops everything. He calls the disciples over, guys, I want you to see this. This has captured my heart. This poor woman, forgotten by society, thought to be nothing, She's got no large sum of money, but she's got a large trust in Almighty God. And that captures my heart. And does, does that not want our hearts to say, I want, I want to be like that. I want, to, I want to lay myself down at the feet of the Lord and give him all of me. And you know what we find when we do that? Not only does God get the glory, but we then get the freedom. C.S. Lewis uh, called pride the great sin but he also then said uh, that pride is very hard to do. 
And his point was, when we are proud, we tell the Lord, not today, Lord, I got this one. I'm going to carry this burden. I got this. Let me go. This, let, let the show be about me today. And you know what that's like. That is a roller coaster of life, and you're crushed under it constantly. But pride, uh, but humility then, humbling ourselves under the Lord, offering our whole selves to the Lord, says, Lord, I can't do this. But you sure can. I lay myself under you. God, you take this. I give myself to you. You are the master. You are the king. And I will trust in you, the good shepherd. And that, brothers and sisters, is freedom. And so it starts by beholding who Christ is that then makes us want to come underneath him. And if you're a follower of Christ uh, this morning, we will uh, even offer ourselves once again. This is like a, a daily thing, coming to the Lord. Lord, again, I give you myself. This is all I got. I have some sin that needs to be forgiven, and I have my stumbling, bumbling myself. That's all. Would you take it? And the Lord delights in that. And so we come to partake of the Lord's table together, uh, trusting in the promise that only Christ has made us right with God. If you're here and a follower of Jesus uh, and striving to walk in repentant faith, uh, you are invited to partake of the table. If you're here this morning, you don't worship Jesus as the Christ the Son of God, the eternal incarnate God, uh, then we ask that you not partake of the elements. Or if you're here this morning and you're not walking in the faith that you proclaim about Christ, we ask you not to partake. But if you're here striving to walk in repentant faith uh, with Christ, we invite you to come, grab the elements, return to your seat, and then we will partake together.